0: Welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. Over the next hour, you'll have the opportunity to listen to Cynthia Hyatt, an internationally recognized therapist and life management expert in private practice with offices in Phoenix and Scottsdale. As a captivating communicator, Cynthia engages, energizes, and inspires her audiences to become all God created them to be. For more information on Cynthia's diverse background, log on to CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. Let the next 60 minutes inspire, motivate, and encourage you to become your own best version. Now, here's Cynthia.
1: Well, welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, and I am so glad you joined me today. We have a show today which is in the fourth part series of our um, shows on breast cancer and breast cancer awareness and the battle that comes with breast cancer. And so today's show is about grief and loss, and the title of this show is How Do I Make the Pain Stop? Because unfortunately, with any Life threatening or terminal disease, we lose people. Of course, we lose people in other ways, and we lose things in our lives in other ways, and we have major losses that are other than death, but certainly the loss of a loved one probably tops everything because it can't be undone. And so, someone you've given love to and received love from has died, and you're in mourning. You're bereft. And to be bereaved, literally means to be torn apart. We love and we lose. Death and life are inevitable, and and we know this intellectually, but when we lose someone, especially in a way that seems to make no sense or seems nonsensical or, or downright mean, how do we deal with that pain? And so our question for today's show is, how do I make the pain stop? So I love this verse, In the 35th, uh, it's the 35th verse in the 11th chapter of John, and it says simply, Jesus wept. Now, although it is the shortest verse in the entire Bible, it is by far one of the most poignant and endearing moments in the life of Christ. And so these two words say so much and speak so much and tell us so much on so many different levels. Because we see in the famous story of Lazarus, which is what caused Jesus to weep was that a much-beloved man died. And his dying process and subsequent death revealed tremendous grief and loss and bewilderment, anger, shock, uncertainty, and hurt. Only to name a few of the feelings and thoughts experienced within this story, because um, Jesus in in this story could have healed Lazarus. and, And it was very disturbing, very unsettling, very hurtful to the entire community as they worked so hard to help Lazarus survive the illness. And so the entire community was at a loss and their faith felt shattered. And if they had no faith, they probably didn't want to try to have faith at this point. So what we find is that the loss of something we love or some, something we've been, become attached to or, or something we've had hope for or hoped in is such a familiar pain to all of us humans. And although each of us experiences our pain, it is unique to us. It is our own version of pain. And so we have the statement that I'm sure you're very familiar with. The only way out is through. Well, this very succinctly explains this problem of pain we all have. We would all love to go around the pain, over the pain, even under the pain, but through the pain, well, we, we all want to think there's got to be a different way. So we all know of people and i have had read about different individuals who did not successfully manage the pain of loss. Because you see, pain demands a response, regardless of the size or the impetus of the pain. And so this need to manage pain, to understand the purposes of pain, and and to deal with how we manage pain, heal from pain, grow from pain, so that the pain of the loss will be great, will be less than, it's getting over the loss we want to to cause us to have something greater than the loss itself so that we can see pain as a gift, which I know in, in, to many of you that are listening to this, you're probably saying, I just want to, I just want to stop listening to the show at this point because it's so painful to be in the midst of it. So the way that we manage pain honors the person we lost. That's what we want to really hang on to. The way we manage it, our willingness to heal from it honors the person we've lost. Because that person that we've lost would never, ever want our life to stop. Would never want our life to just be hell for the rest of its entire time we are here on earth. That person that we lost, the fight that they fought, when whatever it was, that whatever the disease, the illness, the, the tragedy, the, the accident, whatever it was they were fighting, they don't want that fight to be in vain. And if our life ends up being one of nothingness, or, or ongoing sadness, ongoing pain, ongoing misery, ongoing anger, then the fight that that person engaged in would have been in vain because we want their life to mean something to us. We want their life to have changed us in a way that causes us to be a better, bigger, stronger, more intense person, not someone that becomes less than because of the life being stolen from us. So this famous verse, Jesus wept, it's so powerful because the mere fact that in a literary sense the author had it stand alone tells us that God wants to make a point. See, there's something here for us because physically God understands the need for tears and the expression of them. And this is just a little side note that may help to understand the power of tears because tear composition varies from tear types. So mainly tears composed are composed of water, salts, antibodies, and lysozymes. These are antibacterial enzymes. So according to a discovery by Dr. William H. Fry II, yes, he's a biochemist from St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center, Minnesota, the composition of tears caused by emotions differs from that of tears as a reaction to irritants such as onion fumes, dust, or allergy. So what we find is that emotional tears are composed of protein-based hormones such as prolactin, andracorticopic, and leucine and caffeine, a natural painkiller. And this is suggested to be the mechanism behind the experience of crying. That emotion, actually that crying from emotion makes the individual feel better because those tears comprised of sorrow actually help us heal and help us feel better. Because in that, in the, the Protein-based hormones that are in those types of tears are natural painkillers. And so these types of tears release pain and release those painkillers. And so Jesus needed to feel better, which is amazing to think of him as just, he's a mortal man. Even though he's God in the flesh, he's a mortal man. And so he needed to feel better at that moment. He needed to get some strength because crying is often characterized as being weak. And what we find is that it is strengthening if we will allow it to happen because it is a cathartic release of pain, even if while you're crying in this moment, it's not feeling better. What I want you to think about is the amount of release of emotions, of heartache that is happening while you are participating in that. And so there's this, there's this amazing verse. And I did this study as well about this whole idea of crying and pain and loss And it's in Jeremiah chapter um, 9, verse 17, and it's in the Message Bible. And if you've ever heard of that saying, the weeping and wailing women, I want you to understand what these weeping and wailing women were. They were actually hired to come to funerals and cry. That's what their job was. And so in this verse, 17 and chapter 9 of Jeremiah, it says, Send for the singers who can help us mourn our loss. Look over the trouble we are in and call for help. Tell them to hurry, to help us express our loss and lament. Help us get our tears flowing. Make tearful music of our crying. Listen to it. Listen to the torrent of tears out of Zion. We're a ruined people, ashamed people. We've been driven from our homes and must leave our land. So this people group had tremendous grief and loss as a culture. So we can truly relate to this. When when we go to funerals, you know, we understand that, wow, this may be one of the reasons that these weeping and wailing women were called forth. Because this incident memorializes the significance of it. It is necessary as a way to move forward. And so when we come forth and we grieve together, there's healing physically in crying over that loss, as we've expressed earlier. So when you look at the phenomenon of a funeral and you are moved by the pain of another person, that's what this verse is expressing. Look over the trouble we're in and call for help. Send for some singers and help us mourn our loss. Tell them to hurry to help us express our loss and lament. Help us get our tears flowing. See, we need to cry and we need to cry together. Now, it doesn't mean we can only cry together. But one of the things that helps when we are with others is for those of us that might be stuck, that might not want to feel, that might want to just bear ourselves against it, embrace ourselves against it, and refuse to let those tears come. This helps to get some of those tears moving. It helps to give us a platform. It helps to make sense of what our loss is. And it helps us to know that we are not alone in our loss. See, God understands that this world hardens us. And sometimes we need help to feel the feelings appropriate to our situation. And we, we need to know that the expression of pain is actually healing and the need to be vulnerable and connected with others strengthens us individually and collectively. So, you know, this, this statement, you know, there's no use crying over spilt milk. Well, it sounds logical to our human mind, but it is exceedingly unhealthy when we understand our created design, how we are designed. So the enemy of our soul wants us to minimize our pain and maximize our pleasure as a way to thwart the process of achieving a rich and full abundant life. So the the enemy of our soul is intent on impeding the process of healing and stealing all that is good. So how do we do this? Well, we are going to look at the grief and loss process in this next segment. And I want to encourage you that if you are one of those people that freezes when other people feel pain, it's imperative that you find a way to feel the pain if it is needing to be by yourself. And I I can relate to that. I, I do better feeling pain by myself, but I also find I heal also in a different way, in a deeper way, in a more connected way, when I will let myself feel pain with others. So as we look at this next segment of how do we do it, we are going to look at the five-stage model of grief and loss. And this was first introduced by a Swiss-American psychiatrist, her name's uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and it's in her book on death and dying. And she discovered this in 1969. So you can you can know this is very powerful because it has stood the test of time. And so we know it to be true. We know it to be valid. And so there is a way to heal from the loss. And it is imperative to heal from the loss. And it is a worthy endeavor. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment as we talk about how to make the pain stop. Well, welcome back to Conversations with Cynthia. This is Cynthia Hyatt. And today, the name of this show, the title of this show is called, How Do I Make the Pain Stop? And if you are not able to listen to the show in its entirety, you can always visit my website at CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. And hit the radio tab, and all those shows are listed there. So this show will be on the website, and you can listen to it in its entirety. So this idea of how do we make the pain stop, well, we are talking about a very, very poignant, very painful topic today, and that is the loss of a loved one. It also applies to the loss of, of any great loss that you have in your life, and that may mean a job. It may mean the loss of, of a, a relationship. It may mean um, the loss of, of some level of health in your life. It may mean the loss of, of a dream. But either way, the loss of a loved one is one of the most tangible and difficult and complicated losses to manage. And there's a part of us that doesn't want to even get over the loss of that person because sometimes we feel like that's the only thing left we have of them. And sometimes our anger that we might feel toward them helps us to steel ourselves against the pain of the loss and we can just rail against the, um, how, 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 nonsensical or how unfair or how mean or how troubling or how wrong the loss might have been. And maybe we're angry at the person that has passed. So you can see that this gets very complicated. So when we look at this five-stage model, the reason we're doing this is because I just want you to have a template to understand what the process is so you can maneuver through it effectively and not get stuck in it. So what I want you to understand is that this is this is a model, this is, um, I'm going to tell it to you in a linear fashion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's how we we always go through it. So this applies to the idea of death and dying in the physical realm, and it applies to the concept of death of anything that is meaningful to us. So what we find ourselves in, stage one, that is that of shock. And shock means... We're not taking anything in. We, we believe the person is, that, that it's not possible. And so we usually hear people screaming, no, no, no. They faint. They, they shut down completely. They dissociate. You know, they, they just come, go into complete lockdown. And as soon as the shock starts to wear off a little bit, we generally go into denial. And what denial looks like is this idea that it's just not possible. That can't be. It, it's, it, we can't even conceive of it. There's no way we start thinking that they're going to call us, that they're going to show up at work the next day. Um, sometimes denial, we even actually will see them on the street or in a store or walking around the corner in our house because our mind just cannot take in that this person is gone. And so denial is a very powerful process. And it is one of those those issues that I want you to understand at at some level is very healthy because it helps us to take in a loss in, in steps. It helps us to take it in in little doses. And so the smaller the loss, the easier we can take it in whole. So let's say I, I miss the light um, and I'm late to work. And so I'm super frustrated and I have to wait three minutes because it's a really long light. Well, that, that's a loss. I, I lost whatever time I thought I, was, I imagined I was going to have. But I get over it very quickly. I don't ruminate the rest of my entire day on the loss of... The, those three minutes. So I can kind of take it in whole. And so I go through the, to the point of acceptance fairly quickly. When I am trying to, to manage the loss of a loved one, that is going to many times take two to five years, minimum of one year. And so what we find is that it, what I explain to my patients, when I'm working with them about grief and loss is it's kind of the difference between the light at the grocery store is like a bite of a Pop-Tart. I take it one bite, I chew it up, I swallow it, it's gone. Whereas the loss of a loved one is metaphorically similar to trying to consume the entire cereal aisle at Safeway. It's going to take me one bite at a time, and it's a lot to take in, process, assimilate. And so we have to be really kind with ourselves and understand that God gave us the gift of denial for a reason because we are all in some level of denial all the time. This world is a very difficult place. So you want to understand that denial is given to us by God through our psyche to protect us from unreasonable harm so that we really can slow down the process of loss and give ourselves time to take a breath and deal with it. The only time that denial becomes unhealthy or dysfunctional is when it leads to sickness, when it is, a, it, it is something that we are needing to address that might kill us, that harm us, um, steal from us, whatever that is, and we are denying it, such as addictions, um, uh, uh, our, our unwillingness to, to manage our finances. Maybe someone knows they have a, a life-threatening terminal illness and they are in complete denial and refuse to face it. That's when we would say denial is not healthy. But this original part of denial when you first experience the loss, is a gift. And sometimes it helps us just to relax. That We just can't believe it. We just can't believe it. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to take it in. We don't want to deal with it. It just can't be true. So it gives us some time. The third step or the third stage in this whole process is called bargaining. And we as Americans are great at bargaining because bargaining is about absolute complete resistance to um, the loss, which means that I'm going to bargain. So I'm going to do the coulda, woulda, should as if only then. So if I would have done, done this, then it wouldn't have happened. I could have done this. Oh, I should have done this. If only I would have said this. And so we go through this whole entire process of how we might not have to experience this loss. So if the person that we are, are, are grieving, let, let, let's say prior to their loss, we might get into some bargaining about the level of of the terminality of the illness. And we might say to God something like, you know, I will go to church every Sunday from now on if you don't let this person die. So that's part of the bargaining process. So sometimes what you will find with the people that you have grieved, the loss of, if they have had a terminal illness, they may have come to the whole entire acceptance process long before the people that love them have. They may be far more accepting of, of the death of themselves than you are, which can be very disturbing for the people that love them, because we many times don't want them to accept that as as the inevitable. We want them to keep fighting. So when we're in that bargaining stage, it's a very active stage. Third stage, the fourth stage. I'm sorry. Is is um, um is that of of anger, and anger is this amazing feeling that is very activated. And if we can stay angry, we feel angry, we feel powerful. And so anger has a tendency to be a place that many people get stuck in because it gives them some kind of barrier, some kind of wall, some kind of activity. It, It has an intensity that causes them to feel empowered because the loss of somebody is a very powerless feeling. And so anger can cause us to want to stay stuck in anger. Well, the next one is that of sadness and mourning. And this is a very inactive state, and it is out of all the the feelings in the feeling realm, it is the least active, and so it is the one we avoid the most. And the fifth stage is that of acceptance. And that means that I have gone through each of those, and I've recycled through them, and I've done them as much as I need to do, and I've landed at a place of peace. Forgiveness and acceptance is the last stage, the arrival place of the grief and loss process. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment as we continue to look at the stages of grief and loss. How do I make the pain stop? Please go to my website at CynthiaHyatt.com and join me in the next segment. welcome back to Conversations with Cynthia, and I'm Cynthia Hyatt. Always glad that you're with me today, and we are talking today about a very powerful, poignant, and deep topic, and that is the issue of grief and loss, and the loss of a loved one, as well as um, the loss of anything that is meaningful to us. And so there are many ways that we look at this issue of loss, and And one of the most powerful ways of healing from any major loss is going through what we call the five stages of grief and loss. And as we said, this was developed by a Swiss psychiatrist. Her name is Dr. Kubler-Ross. And these five stages are very powerful, and they have stood the test of time. She developed these in 1969. And so we talked in the last segment about these five stages. And that starts with shock, denial, bargaining, Anger, sadness, acceptance, and forgiveness. And so that first step of shock and denial is, I I just can't believe it. I can't take it in. It's not possible. And we talked about the fact that denial is not necessarily always an unhealthy thing. It's only unhealthy when it, it is something that has to be addressed and I'm avoiding it and getting into all kinds of different defense mechanisms to pretend like whatever it is is not happening. So if we have someone that has lost a loved one and they are in denial of that three months after the loss, we know that that is probably not healthy at this point. But the first couple of days to just be completely in shock and denial and continue to say to yourself, shaking your head, I can't believe it. It's not possible. How did this happen? You keep feeling like they're going to call you or they're going to walk around the corner. This is a very healthy process. And it's one of the things that God has given us in our psyche to help us slow down the blow of a major loss. So then we have this idea of of bargaining, which is what I was saying in the previous segment that Americans are very good at. And that's this bargaining of there's got to be a way to not have to to have this loss. So I bargain with God. I bargain with myself. I bargain with other people. I I do the whole could have, should have, would have, if only then. I should have done this. If I would have done this, I could have done this. If I do this, then they won't die these types of things, and, and then we fall into this issue of anger, and, and I really want you to know to not ever, ever feel guilty about anger. You might be angry with God. You might be angry at the person that passed, especially if the, the person that passed away was, was as a result of a suicide. There's so many complicated feelings that we feel when we lose someone, And so there's, there's anger if we, the loss of a dream, there's anger if we lose the biggest business deal that we ever worked on. It took us an entire year and it was stolen from us. If we lose a relationship, if there's infidelity, there, there, anger is a very, very important emotion and it is intended to empower us to go forward. So when it becomes dysfunctional in the grief and loss process is when that anger, when I get stuck in anger because I don't want to feel the powerless of the loss of that person's life. And so when I can't let go of the anger because I don't want to feel the pain, this is when we know that probably that anger is now no longer healthy. But that anger is a part of having to deal with something that should not have been. That we are humanly just infuriated by life and that life ends in death for everybody and there's no way that we can avoid it. And it's the feeling that they didn't live the long, healthy life that we wish for everyone, but that that person had to die too soon in a brutal manner. And so there's anger about that. There's anger at the doctors. There's anger at the family members. There's anger at ourselves. There's anger at God. There's anger at w- whatever is happening in our society that might be leading, as like what we're talking about today, this issue of cancer. And so it's imperative that we do not condemn ourselves for anger, that we do not do that, that we accept anger and we find ways to appropriately manage that anger, feel that anger, work through that anger so that we are willing to feel the feelings of sadness. Because sadness and mourning are the hardest feelings to feel because they are incapacitating and and they have no energy in them. And so they're very difficult to feel and to pass through. But acceptance is where we want to land because acceptance means that I've been able to manage that loss, find the good things about, not because I lost that person, but what are good things that have come from it? And that might mean new friends. That might mean a new acceptance of myself. That might mean greater confidence in myself because of what I've been able to handle or what I figured out. There may be good things in terms of what I found out about myself and my ability to love and to care for someone. So we want to really understand that acceptance, that place of healing, does not in any way mean we're not connected to that person anymore. What it means, as we started out in the beginning of the show, that my life now is going to be one of healing that honors the person I've grieved, so that my life is strengthened by their life, not lessened by the loss of their life. So this is a very powerful process that we want to find ourselves in. We don't want to find ourselves in, but we want to find our way out. And so I encourage you, if you've not listened to this show, if you can't in its entirety, to go to my website at CynthiaHyatt.com, and you can listen to it in its entirety. Join me again in the last segment as we finish the show on How Do I Make the Pain Stop? Well, welcome back to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, and today we are addressing a very powerful, very painful, very poignant issue, and that is the issue of loss, the loss of a loved one. And we are talking about the five stages of grief and loss, and how we heal, how do we make the pain stop. And so when we were talking about those five different stages, and I want to encourage you, if you've just tuned in to go to my website at CynthiaHyatt.com and you can listen to the show in its entirety. I also have a Facebook page, which is Cynthia Hyatt Inc., that's I-N-C for Incorporated, that has lots of motivational, inspirational things on that site. So go ahead and like that page as well. And you'll find more um, opportunity for healing and hope. So as we understood this grief and loss process or cycle, it's important to understand it was never intended to be a rigid process. So it has the characteristics of a process, but it is do- not done in a rigid sequential series. So we kind of look at it as a model or a framework that includes these necessary processes. So you want to understand that you're, you're kind of going to go through this process in many different ways. So you're going to start with shock and denial. You may move immediately into anger. Then you may start to do some bargaining. And then you might go back to anger. And then you might go back to bargaining. And then you might get so tired of being angry and trying to figure out a way to not have to deal with the loss that you finally succumb to sadness and mourning only to find out that you can't stand how sad you feel. So you get angry again and then maybe you start bargaining again and then you get sad again and then you accept a little bit of it and you think you're to acceptance only to find that you're still, you're not accepting of it because you start bargaining again or you get angry again. Another, um, you know, we celebrate another event And it kind of feel like it starts all over again. Like you feel like you were accepting of the loss of that person. And then there's Christmas and you have to face Christmas without them. And so you find that you kind of go through this process and to really give yourselves time to really feel and endure this process. And, and for those of you that are in the, in the arena of, of cancer and cancer recovery and the the battle against cancer and, Also, the loss that we have with people that do not win that battle of cancer. There may be multiple people that you know that are struggling with this. So the best way to manage this is what we talked about in the very beginning of this show, and that is we need to have a group. We need to have others to help in the support of ourselves. We can't do this by ourselves. That's what we talked about in in the book of Jeremiah 9.17. That's the weeping and wailing women that come alongside and help us to feel those feelings to be with us so that while we are in our grief, we are not alone. Now, of course, that does not mean that there aren't times we need to grieve alone. But we want to make sure that we are not trying to do this all by ourselves. So I want to read you this phenomenal poem that I came across that has helped me over the years as I have endured many losses. And um, I know this grief and loss process very well. And so this this poem is by Robert Browning Hamilton, and it says, I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And I can tell you how true that is in my life and how powerful that is. So I want you to understand this whole process of grief and loss and the power that comes from it and the strength that comes out of it. And I want to talk about what might be some roadblocks for effectively managing pain. And it might be that the person doesn't recognize that the change has taken place. Uh, They might not recognize that the person that is struggling with cancer has taken a, a, a complete turn for the worse and they may not be recovering. So they may be in denial about that and just think it's just another, you know, around the mountain, we got to go another round of this or another round of that, and then we'll be back to where we were. And so we may not recognize the change that's taken place in our own life. Um, it, we, it may be that the person may not accept that the loss has occurred. So it's this, it's this idea that, you know, I'm not even wanting to acknowledge that this person has lost a limb or lost a breast or lost... Um, their husband, because their husband couldn't tolerate the, the issue of cancer. So another thing that we, that might get in the way of managing pain is that the individual might not expect to mourn a loss other than that of death. And so you may think that, why am I so sad and so angry and going through all these, these different, what Cynthia is saying are stages of grief and loss, and the person hasn't died yet? Well, that's because of the amount of changes that have occurred in the process. And so we might also, when we have feelings such as anger and rejection and guilt, it kind of complicates and obscures the underlying grief. And it might be that they, it comes from a socially stigmatized event, such as um, all of the people that I thought would be such powerful friends as I went through cancer, or as my mom did, or my sister, or my, whoever that is. All of a sudden, we've lost a whole entire group of people They can't face cancer, and we've had to make a whole new set of friends. And so sometimes we also have emotional blocks that are from previous losses that we have not resolved that get in the way of us feeling what we need to feel in the process that we're in. Sometimes it's over-dependence on on the person that we are are helping that all of a sudden our our worth and value is, is stemming from their ability to heal. And so we get identity out of that process instead of really finding out who we are in the process and how we can actually help that person. So we also have had this idea of forgiveness, and, and forgiveness is part of the acceptance process. And, and sometimes, you know, forgiveness is a, is a really, can be a real hot button for a lot of us. And that has a lot to do with the forgiveness of something that should not have been. And what I say to clients every day and to myself that's the only reason we have forgiveness, because we don't have to forgive something that's, that's right. We don't have to forgive something that's good. We have to forgive something that's wrong, that we didn't want, that hurt us, that harmed us, that betrayed us, that, that the person that rejected us, that thwarted our success, that stole from us, that abused us, the person that passed away. And sometimes it's our body. If I'm the one struggling with cancer, I have to forgive my body because I might think my body's against me when I have to realize that my body is being attacked by itself. My body is always for me, fighting as hard as it can for me. And part of the healing process is me forgiving my body if I feel like it betrayed me. And the you know, I may have to forgive God. And I know that sounds odd because those of us of faith know that, you know, God is perfect and God is love and all those things and God would never hurt us. We know those things intellectually, But God doesn't always do what we want and we get hurt because he doesn't do what we want or what we think we need or what we think is the best. So many times we might have to forgive God and it isn't because we're forgiving him because he did something wrong. We're forgiving him because he didn't do it our way and because we got our feelings hurt and it harmed our faith. And the nicest thing to know about God is he can handle our anger He's not afraid of our anger. He knows anger very well. He has felt anger himself over what has happened to his creation in its entirety. So he really understands anger. So we want to make sure that we are allowing ourselves to feel that and to let a life-changing experience be a face-bringing experience. So, what are reconciliation needs? There, there are six reconciliation needs that, that a man named Dr. Wolfelt um, has, has written. And I, I love this, and I want to share it with you. And so the death of, of a loved one, it changes our lives forever, and we know that. The movement from before to after is always long. It's a painful journey. And so in that journey, we learn mourning. And there's an important difference, you see, because grief is what you think and feel on the inside after someone you love dies. Mourning is that outward expression of those thoughts and feelings. And to mourn, it's an active participant in your grief journey. So we all grieve when someone dies, but if we are to heal, we must also mourn. And we know that in, in um, one, the, the famous Sermon on the Mount that God said, blessed are those who mourn. And so there are six, like what he calls yield signs that you're likely to encounter and these reconciliation needs. So the first one is acknowledging the reality of the death. And that means the mourning involves confronting the reality that someone you cared about will never physically come back into your life again. Whether that death was sudden or anticipated, acknowledging the full reality of the loss may occur over weeks and months. And to survive, you might have to push away the reality. That's when we talked about that idea of of, of denial and some of the bargaining. And you might find yourself replaying those events surrounding the death. And the first need of mourning, that is the first need to do is to mourn. And so it's important that it that you give it the time that it needs and the attention it needs. And the second one is it's embracing the pain of the loss. And when we looked at those five stages of grief and loss, there's that tendency to want to distance ourselves from that pain. And one of the ways we do that is through anger and and bargaining. And so this is something we don't naturally want to do. We don't want to embrace it. It's easier to avoid it, repress it, um, detach from it, move away from it, distract ourselves from it. But you'll discover that you need to kind of dose yourself in embracing it. In other words, you can't do the whole thing. Remember when we talked about needing to like assimilate and consume the entire cereal aisle at Safeway, that when a loss is that big, it's that kind of metaphorically one bite at a time. So our culture tends to encourage the denial of pain. Like we're just going to kind of make funny anecdotes about the person and move on and laugh and say how great it was we knew them and not really feel the full depth, breadth of it. And so we want to feel like we need to be, you know, strong and in in control. And that's why we talked about that real need that there is strength from the from the the person that can cry, that they give strength to others and they gain strength from themselves. So we need to become acquainted with our pain. The third one is that we remember it's remembering the person who died. So you have a relationship of memory. And precious memories, dreams reflecting the significance of the relationship and objects that link you to that person who died. Photos, souvenirs, any of these types of things. These are examples of some of the things that give testimony to a different form of a continued relationship. So even though that person is physically not with us, we have evidence of their life and how meaningful it was and what it meant to us. And so this need of mourning involves allowing and encouraging yourself to pursue that relationship. We also have this need to develop a new identity. And that comes from the relationship you have with other people. So with someone with whom you have a relationship with, when they die, your self-identity or the way you see yourself naturally changes. So you may have gone from a wife or husband to a widow or widower. And so that often requires you to take on new roles that have been filled by the person who died. So you confront the changed identity every time and you do something that used to be done by that person who died. And it can be very hard work, but it's very, very, very vital. And the fifth one is you search for meaning. And so when someone you love dies, you naturally question the meaning and purpose of life. You probably will question your philosophy of life and explore religious, spiritual values, all these types of things. And you might discover yourself searching for meaning in your continued life as you ask how and why. How could God let this happen? And for those of you who already have what you thought was a very firm faith, this could really shake it. And for those of you who who resisted a faith, this might bring it back into the forefront and force you to really look at it again. And so the person who died was a part of you. So the death means that there's overwhelming sadness and loneliness, and that these become our companions until we get to the place of acceptance. So lastly, we need to receive ongoing support from others. We cannot do this ourselves. So I want to end this with the serenity prayer, which I love. And it says, God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot change. Courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish one from another. So I encourage you today in your process. And I pray God's blessings on you while you heal. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me again next week and have a blessed we hope
0: week. hope this past hour has been encouraging, motivating, and inspiring to you.